So today we're going to be talking about the movie Dune Part 2 or Chapter 2. I'm not sure what they ended up calling it, but I'm, I'm just going to call it Dune 2 from here on out, which is by Denis Villeneuve, who's a French-Canadian director, and I'm sure that I butchered the pronunciation of his name, and Timothy Chalamet. And Dune 2 is the sequel to the 2021 adaptation of Dune which is a 1965 sci-fi novel that's very famous. I remember reading it when I was a kid, and I loved that book. It really is a wonderful book, and I recommend you go out and read it. The 2021 adaptation... I think I've watched it three or four times, which I wasn't expecting when I first saw it in theaters. But there's so much good there, and Vigneault is one of my favorite directors that I, I think he kind of redeems itself. So my criticism of the original film was kind of that it was too short, in that, like, there are a lot of story beats where you're you're kind of waiting for them to happen, and the, the story doesn't come to, like, a clear climax. But it's also too long at the same time, in that I think if they cut it maybe an hour early, they would have had a, a pretty clear resolution to the story that they were trying to tell. And Vigneault is one of the last great filmmakers. He did Blade Runner 2049, which is one of my favorite films of all time. And he's done other great movies like Prisoners. I really strongly recommend that. Then Sicario. And he's one of these guys who clearly has a good relationship with studios. And that's pretty rare these days, right? A lot of directors, especially if they're kind of experimental, you know, it takes uh, a certain level of hot-headedness and um, certainty that you're right to rise to one of those roles. And that can often be obnoxious to people who are trying to run a business machine, like a movie studio and a very complicated business machine. And so a lot of people burn their bridges and they don't really get big projects because they're not really team players. Vigneault is not like that. He's always been very experimental and he's not afraid to take risks but even when his risks haven't paid off, he's always been very gracious. I, I watched the interviews with him. He, he seems like a genuinely nice guy. And so anyway, he's one of the few guys who's around these days who they'll trust for a really big budget movie that's not like a Tom Cruise movie, right? Where it's not necessarily guaranteed to make $400 billion or, or whatever. And so I was excited that the first Dune movie was made, even if I wasn't entirely happy with it. And... I have to say, guys, Dune 2 was just fucking bad. It was really bad. I was so disappointed. There's only one IMAX theater in my state, and I drove to it. And, it, you know, it was, not a, it was not a short drive. And I'm so excited. I, you know, I have my ridiculous popcorn bucket. I'm ready to see the, the big movie and the big screen with the big sound. Like, I'm a huge defender of movie theaters. That, that atmosphere is so important. And, like, you know, I, I saw First Man in IMAX and that, you know, that makes the difference. And for big budget movies, like, that that often does make the difference, right? The epic scale. And Dune is certainly an epic, so you think you would compliment it well. And I have to say, the entire movie totally fell flat for me. I have been a Denis Villeneuve sycophant for so long. I will defend anything he does, no matter how ridiculous it is. I, I uh, love the movie he did with Jake Hall, where there's like, they're like twins, and it's like super abstract. That was great, okay? You know, I, I wanted to love this, and it just wasn't there for me. So I guess before I really talk about the problems, I should go a little bit into the details of the production of this particular adaptation of the book. So I, I think it started in 2019, and it was the the tail end of 2019 when, when things were getting a little crazy in America, like, you know, the kind of early stages of that. And I heard the distribution of it was really disrupted due to COVID. And they basically gambled with the movie, right? The there there was not a sequel guaranteed when they went into it, right? I think they had they had plans for three movies total, 
and they cover all the events of the book in these first two movies, but there are several sequels which can be made into a third movie. But anyway, it wasn't guaranteed, right? They're rolling the dice. When they make the first one, they don't necessarily know if they're going to make a second one, and so the work on the second one wasn't completed when they were developing the first one. And that kind of is contra to how these adaptations usually go. So I think of like the Lord of the Rings movies, which, you know, adapt a similar like 1960s book, and and I think that those are some of the best movies of all time and definitely some of the best adaptations of all time. But those were all made as one cohesive product all together. And so there's like a singular thread throughout them, even though the movies kind of all hit different areas, like they, they feel very closely linked together. And I have to say for these two movies, you can tell that they were made apart from each other, right? You can tell that they, it wasn't like one continuous shoot. The pacing is kind of different. The aesthetic is kind of different. The actors seem different from part one to part two, right? I watched the original movie before I saw, or I watched the first movie before I saw the second one, and it just seems kind of off. And there's not the same continuity there. And for a movie like this, you need that sense of continuity because they start you in the middle of the story. Right? There's always that funny thing where they're like, you're on like the third game of a series and some marketing person will be like, this is a great time to start the series, right? When it's, it's actually the finale and you know that it's not actually a good time to start it. Like you actually need to know a lot before you got to go into a product like this. Dune 2 is kind of like that, right? Where they like make a little bit of a lazy attempt to introduce you to the world again, but you, you need to have seen the first movie. And that's a problem because the second movie doesn't quite fit perfectly together with the first movie. It seems like things, uh, especially coming off of the more action-y finale, you know, the pacing of the first movie is all over the place, but they, they at least end on kind of an action sequence, and then they throw you into, like, introducing you to the world of the Fremen. And I guess I should take this moment to kind of summarize the book and the general world of Dune. So Dune, it's like the distant, distant future, like 10,000 A.D., Mankind has reverted to a, a sort of feudalism. They've banned advanced AI and computers. And so it's like this like highly ritualized society where everyone has to fulfill really specific roles to make society work. And interstellar travel is enabled through a substance called spice. I'm not sure the actual mechanics of it. Um, if you take enough of it, you can kind of see the future. And I think that like space travelers, like they basically just see the future where they end up in the place where they want to go. And if they didn't have that, there'd be a coin flip on whether or not you died when you, you know, like went into hyperspace or whatever. Uh, but anyway, spice is very important and it's the only thing that enables interstellar travel. One of the feudal houses of which Paul Atreides, the hero, is a member of is granted control of this planet, you know, Dune, the only only planet where vice naturally occurs. And they're, they're granted that as like a royal concession, but it's really this complex trap to undermine the house. And the emperor of this feudal society is threatened by the house's like rise to prominence. And so he wants to kneecap them. And he gives them the royal concession because he knows it will make their rivals, House Harkonnen, jealous of them. And it's going to make House Harkonnen kill them all. And that's what ends up happening in the climax of the last movie. House Harkonnen, with the help of the emperor, just like totally wipes out Paul Atreides' family and they take control of Dune again and Paul Atreides is banished to the desert. He, he nearly escapes assassination and goes to live with the Fremen, who are these very interesting kind of tribal desert people who are all obsessed with water and prophecy and, and things of that nature. And I'm not going to get into the specifics here, but people often say that Dune is Star Wars for adults, which I, I don't think is really true. 
In fact, I think that the added complexity Dune makes it uniquely appealing to children because children, even if they don't know how things work, are very interested in them. And they like the idea of a fully fleshed out world where there are all these rules that they can learn. And so Star Wars, you know, it's it's good as an entertainment product. Like, I'm, I'm, you know, the original Star Wars movies, I think, are really good. Dune, I think, is a great, like, children's adventure story because it's about someone who's thrust into an unfamiliar world and gradually gains mastery of it. And that's like childhood, right? Like, you, you don't know how the world works, and then you gradually figure it out, and hopefully you kind of come into your own in that process. Paul Atreides becomes a man, the words of custom of the Fremen, and becomes a sort of messianic figure for them. And, and a lot of Dunes, you know, the reason why people like Dune so much is there's so much writing about the nature of power and religion and, and empire and civilization. Anyway, Paul totally integrates into, into the society. I think I think the book itself was inspired kind of by Lawrence of Arabia, the British officer who went native with Arab tribesmen and fought the Turkish occupying force during World War One. And by the end of the story, he traps the emperor and basically gets into surrender his crown. He marries the emperor's daughter and and everyone lives happily ever after. And it's been a very long time since I've read the book, but this is a very traditional adventure story. Like, that's at the core of it. And I think he, the author, um, Frank Herbert, basically wanted to do two or three books. And the first book was going to be a traditional adventure story. And then the second book was going to be a total inversion of that, where all the characters, you know, young boy goes forth and becomes the, the ruler of the universe. And the second book is going to be like, young man has to deal with all the problems of being the ruler of the universe. And it's actually very ambiguous and like his plans don't go the way he was expecting at all and things don't work out as neatly as they do in the first and that's i think the big problem of dune part two the first movie, it's pretty straightforward. And the second movie kind of tries to do the, the tongue pivot too early. And they introduce too much ambiguity into this traditional hero narrative. Making matters worse is they try to introduce ambiguity into the narrative by adding into temporary politics. And I think this is kind of inescapable. People might complain about this, but it's, it's kind of impossible not to recognize the modern racial dynamics in the Dune movie. And I've seen a few Dune adaptations and most of them make the Fremen kind of Arab-esque. Like, oftentimes, it'll be, like, white people with a tan or something like that. And that uniformity makes ethnicity and race not really a factor. And here, it's definitely a factor because the, the Fremen in the movie, you know, the native inhabitants of Dune, are portrayed by Hispanics and Arabs and Africans. And all of the off-worlders are white. And so it's one of these white versus brown things. And that's, you know, pretty like that's inescapable when you look at the movie and stemming from that there are lots of kind of critiques of colonialism that people will make right so Paul Atreides has shown up from off world and he wants to lead everyone and you know isn't it fucked up that this like white privileged person is going to show up to the brown people and say hey I'm your leader now in fairness it has been a really long time since I actually read the book I don't think that that tension was really there in um, in the book and it's certainly not as present in the earlier adaptations and here when decolonization and all this stuff is like a hot button political issue it's just kind of grating and it makes it seem overwritten and over contemporary where they're obviously kind of winking at real life disputes so another tangent i really i don't think that this was present in the book is that there is a 
a fundamental clash even within Fremen society between the northern tribes and the southern tribes. And the northern tribes are very secular and they kind of have the like, you know, they, there's a really funny thing where they're like, oh yeah, everyone is equal in our society. Men, men and women are equal. There are no class divisions or anything like that. It's like this like communist thing. And the Southern society is very religious, like lots of, you know, there, there's tons of religious fanatics in the South. And so the, the Southern society is fine. Like there is fine with an off-worlder leading them because it's kind of complicated to explain because they, they have a prophecy that says basically Polytrates is going to show up and you should make him your leader. He's going to lead us all to paradise. And the northern tribes scoff at that. They're like, well, you're letting these like foreign white people wool over us. And you're all basically these like dupes. This is not something that I think was really present in the books. And it, it makes it very contemporary. And for a story like Dune, the appeal is that it is not contemporary at all, right? It's this eternal story. It's about the nature of civilization. And these contemporary elements like wreath are really, really distracting. There's even... Um, uh, like like Paul Atreides is is like eating Fremen food. He like kind of scoffs. And one of the brown women is like, "Oh, is it too spicy for the the white boy or something like that?" And it's just like it, it's it's distracting, and that's bad. But it's also made worse because the film unambiguously takes one party's side, right? Like the the brown people are right, the colonizers are wrong, and the remnants of Paul Atreides' imperial family. There's his mother, who's kind of a high priestess. And there's, um, I think, Gertie Halleck, I might be getting his name wrong. And they're both portrayed as very, like, callous and predatory. And there's there's a level of antagonism, which might be more realistic. But again, I, I don't think that that was really there, like, or at least the sharp elbows weren't there in the original book and also in the earlier adaptations. And again, there's this level of antagonism and tension that just undermines the eternal nature of the story, especially because this is stuff that people are kind of tuned up about. And yeah, there's there's a look when um, Paul's mother is trying to convince him to embrace his role as the Messiah, where she just looks totally evil and she's like the, the like evil queen bee and manipulating all these these dumb brown religious people and she's not supposed to be viewed favorably then and it's just a i don't know she's like kind of ambiguous in the books but like it definitely wasn't to the same degree like that was definitely a recent addition that's a i think a bad message for this story because the book is like kind of pro-colonialism right it's like a, it's about the white savior trope and the white savior shows up and he, he wins they do introduce like pretty huge wrinkles to that in later books but you kind of need that early foundation, like that early basic story, like man comes from off world and ingratiates himself with the natives and then kind of pursues his destiny. And it's a happy story. It's not a self-conscious story. You need that base to build off of to get the pivot, right? They're just jumping to the pivot right here. And you're supposed to know because of contemporary politics that, oh, this is actually a pretty dark thing. I, I don't know. Don't think, I don't think it makes a lot of sense. They're adding this kind of level of uh, this kind of sinister atmosphere to everything that Paul is doing because of contemporary politics and kind of society's face antagonism to religion. But it also doesn't really make sense because Paul 
actually is a messianic figure, like the, the religious prophecies are actually true. And so the whole movie, or at least most of the movie, is basically Paul being like, listen, I am definitely not a white savior. I am absolutely not a white savior. I don't want to be a white savior. But the story demands that he be a white savior. And so it undermines itself. It, it, it is very disruptive. The movie just doesn't flow nearly as well when these elements weren't present. And I, I like they, they aren't present at all, I don't think, or they're very, there's a very light touch at least in the first movie and so I mean this feels very different and I guess a, a more sinister element of this is there's a generation conflict and again, this is, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there's some guy who's like a huge book super fan who will point out that this was present in the first book, but I don't remember it all from the first book, where all the young people feel fundamentally disconnected from the older people. So like Paul Atreides feels disconnected from the older members of his family and is his older kind of, you know, off-world white friends because he is like an ardent decolonialist and, uh, you know, thinks that the Fremen are great and like that their society's better and he doesn't want to pursue their larger imperial games at the expense of the indigenous third world population or whatever. And Paul Andreides' wife, um, Zienda, Zenda, she is very alienated from the older members of her kind of tribal society because the tribal society people are all religious fanatics and she seems more secular and she's ultimately just unhappy that they're being occupied by the white colonizer and thinks that the religious stuff is just a bunch of mumbo jumbo. And she's distrustful even of Paul, and that's something I really don't think was present in the early books, and that's, that's, you know, seems like a very contemporary edition, right, where it's like this stereotypical anti-colonial activist and her white boyfriend, and she's like, well, you're a colonizer, I love you, but like, you're also evil at like a fundamental level, and it just, there's a, a self-consciousness to pretty much everything, and for a traditional hero story like this, I don't think it fits at all, I think there's just a huge tongue clash here. And this is very, very noticeable in the finale, where it's obvious, like leading up to the final battle, that Paul's character is kind of taking a darker turn. He's preying on these kind of base feelings of his followers, and it's firing like lots of religious zealotry and red ruthlessness. And then by the end, he's just kind of yelling at people. And it, he's not casting a very heroic figure, and he's not casting a very timeless figure. He seems like an angry incel. And that, like, I think the closing shot of the movie is, is Zendo looking up as, like, Paul's forces are leaving the planet and she looks betrayed. And that, that seems... I mean, that's totally different than the the ending of the book. Like, if the book has a traditional hero ending, like, Paul wins. And he's a traditional heroic figure. And only once you've established that traditional heroic figure can you kind of take that in the totally opposite direction. It's a very different story if this person is corrupted by power before he even gets power. Right? Like, it, it's just a different story. The tone is totally off. And sadly, I think the tone is off a lot. It, it just in a totally different way due to Denis Vinny's filmmaking style. So I've already said that I love Blade Runner 2049. And one of the reasons that um, Denis Villeneuve is, is so tied to sci-fi is because he's one of these visionary directors where he can flesh out this world, this totally alien world, and it look realistic. He believe that it like functions and that there are hidden parts that are working in, a, in an organized and coherent way that you're just not seeing. And that was very noticeable in, in Blade Runner. And it's, it's noticeable, I mean, it, it, it looks kind of good in the, the first movie, 
where they don't get into the grand conflict and you just kind of like vibe out. Like it's, it's the, the first movie has a lot of scenes that are kind of like mood pieces where they're just showing you this interesting world and you fill in the blanks for how it works, but they're not, there's nothing too crazy happening. So it's pretty easy to come up with an explanation for why X or Y is happening. And the problem is, is that base level of realism really undermines the second part where there's this huge war and all sorts of crazy stuff is happening all the time. So like for the combat, it's never quite clear why they are using, why they don't use projectile weapons all the time, right? There's a great early on scene. This volume, a few action sequences I liked. Like most of the action sequences seem like they just exist to have an action sequence. They, they don't actually make a lot of sense when you think about them. But there's a great scene where they say, Set up an ambush, uh, the, the Fremen set up an ambush for the Harkonnen patrol, and they find a way to lure them onto an exposed mountain and then shoot them all with, with silent sniper rifles. And it's kind of dreamy, like it's a totally unexpected way that they do it. Like you've never seen anything quite like it before, and the sounds are different, and what's going on is different. Like the way the um, the Harkonnen, they have like these like kind of jetpack things, but it looks like they're being drawn up in a very graceful way, right? Like they're floating to where they want to go rather than being thrust there and it, that's a great sci-fi element but they introduce so many different like weapons and projectile things and like once you see like a laser beam that just like blows up their target you're like well, why are they just using the laser beam constantly right you never see any sort of effective defense against the laser beam and it's one of those things where if you know in dune is like this you know the book where if you think about it too much and if things are totally or like over explicated it stops making a lot of sense and I think earlier adaptations understood that. And so there was a level of unreality to things that is not present in, in Vinu's thing, right? He's great at building realistic sci-fi worlds. And I think that a kind of mythical sci-fi world is just out of his wheelhouse. So there were two earlier adaptations. One was done by David Lynch, I think, in the uh, mid-80s. And there was a sci-fi channel original movie miniseries adaptation that was done in, in the early 2000s. The Lynch one is good. Um, there are lots of interesting elements there. I think Lynch is a good fit for it because him, he's kind of dreamy himself. And so the mythical qualities of the Dune universe translate well to his style or at least allow him to do unexpected things with that. And he's got his kind of colorful cast of characters who all perform their jobs very well. Uh, Lynch actually hates the movie. The studio really ha heavily interfered in it. And he had to cut like an hour out of it. And he just disowned the final product and doesn't even like to talk about it just because it was a really hard time for him, right? He said he was like humiliated, like it was like you selling out. And uh, so that's good that I, I think that the, the my favorite adaptation, and this might be just like contrarianism, I like the Sci-Fi Channel original miniseries, which is on YouTube now. You can watch it for free. And a comment I saw on YouTube was like, this is the best high school theater production of Dune that I've ever seen. And it is kind of like that, right? The acting is over the top. The costumes are so funny, right? Like the Sadakar, the, the Emperor's Elite Guard, they're wearing all black chef's hats, right? And it just seems like this totally surreal and kind of amateurish world but that amateurish effect allows them to be a little bit playful and get away with things that they normally wouldn't be able to get away with so there there are some characters in dune who are just over the top evil and they don't mesh with a realistic universe like the one vini was trying to to create and so like for the combat thing if it looks like this totally ham-fisted sci-fi combat and it's like all over the place like you know the the prop guns are so cool it's like a, a kind 
kind of like a cylindrical Gatling gun or something like that. And like when that does something weird, you've never seen anything like it before. And the costumes all look kind of cheap. And the fighting this doesn't necessarily have to make sense. But when they've got like the like billion dollar costumes and the pricey special effects, and you know the world is realistic, you kind of want it to make sense at some level, right? You want this to feel like a flesh out world. And that that just clashes with Dune, right? Or at least they they'd have to make sacrifices to make that coherent. And this this is very noticeable in the villains of Dune um, Part T, the, the new movie, where like, I mean, the high school theater, theatrical production, when someone acts in a zany way, you're like, okay, like, you know, you just roll with it. In a realistic world where like a major military and political leader is just this like complete retard, like that doesn't seem realistic at all. Or you have all these unstable people who like you, you know, if you've encountered someone like with that, like that in real life, even if they're like a nepotism person, right, there, there is a feudal system, but like someone like that, they would not put him in charge. Like there's no way that like in a realistic world, someone like that would be able to, to go very far and that you could find someone else competent to do their job. It, it just doesn't make sense. Like a, I think it's David Batista. I don't remember this character's name, but he, his character is very grating and just like, it seems silly and I'm not opposed to like things that are silly, but when you have a realistic sci-fi universe, like you can't get away with that much silliness. Like, it, it makes things seem cheap. Like, by the end, it seemed like they, like, actually ran out of money because the final battle was so rushed and the new characters they introduced, there's another, um, again, the actor played Elvis. He's generally good, maybe Austin Butler or something like that. But he he plays the kind of more fluent brother. And he, but he's all, he also sucks. Like, he's also not charming or he doesn't have any redeeming qualities at all. And he doesn't seem like a worthy foe. And that's the big problem with, like, all, you know, the stakes by the end of this. There's no sense of of danger for the main character anymore and even the like so like big dramatic things from the finale right like Call Atreides uses a nuclear weapon which is, is banned in the Dune universe to like break a hole open in the enemy's defenses and that just seems like nothing like that's treated totally casually in the um in, in Dune Part 2, and, you know, the, the nuke, like a nuclear weapon, the, the ultimate weapon, like, it's used to propel rocks, and the, the rocks that the nuke throws up land on soldiers and crush them. And that's the only real indication that a nuclear weapon was used. And it, it just, it sucks, man. Like, it seems like they slapped this together at the last minute. It's all over the place, pacing-wise. Sometimes things move really fast. Sometimes things move really slow. And it seemed like, especially for the final battle, they were just trying to get it out of the way. And when characters would say things, it wouldn't really make sense for the scene, right? Like, Christopher Walken, who plays the Emperor, who is just totally miscast. I think most major characters in this movie were miscast. He, like, suddenly says something very insulting to Paul. Like, it just, ah, like, you know, he seems like a total pushover and just kind of confused. And he's also, like, established himself as, as you know, at that, at that point, he's, like, lost all his power and he knows that he's gonna, you know, it's over for him. And, like, just, just deciding to arbitrarily insult this guy in a, in a very personal way just didn't make a lot of sense. Like, it's like they were just going through the motions and the fact that they were clearly setting up the movie for a sequel right there's def they're definitely making a sequel now it just ruined the heroic finale of the original book which which is present in all of the other adaptations of Dan and is good in those but it feels like an actual climax here it doesn't feel like a climax at all right there's even a, a final confrontation between Josh Brolin um, Paul's mentor and David Batista the kind of evil Harkonnen guy and I don't think those guys had ever even met before and it's it the setup is like this like climactic to like final revenge 
but like they have no connection to each other and the the battle is just like Josh Frolin stabbing him immediately without any opposition and then the scene's over and it's like well we have these two characters like we need them to we need to finish their story real quick let's do it like let's let's just the year throw this in there any in conclusion on Dune 2 was just bad man it, it was really bad if someone's praising this movie they're like some kind of weird BLM race communist and they want a Haitian revolution if you personally liked this movie or liked any element of the movie you've betrayed the movement you're you're a horrible person I, I have a, a great deal of personal dislike for you and this is the death of film cinema is over even you has fallen there's no hope for the creative arts and I'm going to go live in my rural a compound and wait for civilization to decline and perhaps in a thousand years people will reinvent movies and movies might be good again but no it looks like movies are just going to be terrible now forever um, the blockbuster is over and I'm not sure that even Tom Cruise Tom Cruise he's basically single-handedly keeping big budget filmmaking alive and good I'm not sure even he can overcome this so I, I guess you know there's always the hope for the future you know the sun on the horizon and we'll see if it, if it ever rises or if it just sinks off forever into darkness and, and we are left in a totally dead and deprived fallen world. And yeah, that's all I got for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, this was a free episode. I really do appreciate all paid subscribers and the overwhelming majority of podcast episodes are paid exclusive. So um, two paid subscribers, I love you so much. You're all beautiful. Uh, the next five episodes at the very least will all be paid exclusive. I solemnly swear to you. Free subscribers are scum. They deserve less. Really, we'd be all better off if someone quote unquote took care of the free subscribers. And yeah, so, so Kate subscribers really do help me out. Please subscribe now. There's a button right below the audio window that says upgrade to paid subscription. It takes five seconds. It's only five dollars a month. And there are just hours of content available now. Um, so yeah, that, that really does help me out. And yes, that veggie villas in. Have you enjoyed this episode? There should be some more coming up. I'm going to do finally do a True Detective season two episode. And I'll be talking about some of my other favorite movies. The Lord of the Rings. I'll go into that. Anyway, I will see you guys uh, pretty soon. Bye.